0: Well, good morning again. And uh, if you're visiting, welcome to the Springs. My name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. I have a few uh, things I want to say from my heart before we get to the text. Um, Many of y'all, if you've been coming around frequently this spring, you'll notice that uh, some things have changed about how we do our services. Uh, If you haven't come around is frequently this spring, then you really notice that things have really changed about how we do our service. We we do a few songs at the start, a few songs at the end, and we celebrate communion together by first releasing through public confession, uh, really releasing things that we bring in here that we don't want to have on us to to grow in the power of God. Amen. And we do this every week, but let me underline a few things that have not changed and will not change. Number one, um, we're people that seeks God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you know yourself just a little bit, you know that you change a lot, sometimes good and sometimes not good. But for us to honor God and to really seek Him, we have to change. So one thing that won't change is that we will keep changing. We will do whatever it takes to seek God, follow him, and make whatever adjustments are are necessary. That won't change. We're going to continue to honor God and grow in his image. Uh, Another thing that doesn't change is we've always believed in discipleship. We honor God, we make disciples, and discipleship is about relationship. And relationship is a, a touch point that you can really see on a Sunday morning with other people. Look around the room, the beautiful people that are beautiful like you are. Uh, And and this relationship also takes place, especially in the rest of the week in our growth group settings. So honor God and make disciples, and one power in the midst of all that is generosity. I want to talk a little bit about time and money and what I've seen recently, Uh, especially last week. Can you stand to your feet if you served in our Easter services? Go ahead and stand to your feet. Let's everyone give these folks a hand. Uh, Y'all can be seated. Uh, This year was an unprecedented year of sending people out. And what we saw from the people who remained and rose up blew my mind. Our church is almost 10 years old, and I've seen this happen time and time again, but I was overly amazed at how many people rose up and served and how excellent it was because you're excellent Uh, and it's mostly God's fault Uh, the other thing I've seen too is you've been generous not only with your time but with money Um, I commit to teaching at least a little bit more in the future on money because we really do care about your heart and we'll do uh, we'll do better than just the minimum on discipling you with money but let me at least say this that uh, when we, especially when we sent six families away to help be prepared to plant a church with Joshua this last, uh, this last winter. Uh, since then, this year, I've been nervous and I've had to pray a lot over our church finances. It's come to this, right? Uh, in the midst of that need, I've seen people and felt it's stronger. People just rise up Generously. You are a very strange and beautiful church. And I commit that the same desperation that I prayed for our church budget for is the same uh, passion that I pray and thank God for how he's been sustaining our budget through your generosity and, and the same passion that I pray that his blessing in Jesus' name over your family and over your work. Um, we've seen an, an abnormal and, and uniquely beautiful expression of the kingdom of God of people honoring God and and making disciples and growing as disciples even in our finances and our time. So God bless you. We've seen a miraculous people rise up. If I'm going to say that I believe in miracles, but I'm not going to give of my time or tithe my income, there's something confusing about that. But I do believe in miracles. And I do sacrifice as if we serve a miraculous God. And from what I see, so do you. So speaking of miracles, can you stand to your feet to honor God's word? We're in 1 John chapter 3. I'll read the first three verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that we, when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes, in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Father, I ask for your grace in this moment. In Jesus' name, in your Son's name, I bind the attack of the enemy on minds, on wills, on emotions. I silence the voice of the accuser. In Jesus' name. And Father, I ask that you help us to hear your voice clearly, purify our vision of you, sanctify our imagination of life with you. Amen. 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 Today is week two of our preaching series, Apostles' Creed. Uh, last week, we, for Easter, we started this series with a message about the first creed that we see in 1 Corinthians 15. It was a creed that was circulating in the first few decades after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, It was a creed that even the, before the, the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written down, there were these creeds, this, this particular creed found in 1 Corinthians 15, that was being articulated to preserve the work of what he did and, and unite people together on the same message. Now, we said last week that if the delivery is of high value like the delivery of this message that this man who was dead is now risen, pretty important delivery, then therefore the, the message will have to be articulated very carefully, very thoughtfully, very accurately. Now the first creed here helped the newly born church to be really uh, sharply in continuity with the message that we're, they're proclaiming, even as they were bravely going against huge opposition. Now fast forward to the Apostles' Creed, maybe about a century and a half or a little bit more after the first creed. The church has continued to grow very rapidly. The Apostles' Creed is the next in line of our heritage of Christian creeds. It's the next earliest creed after the creed we see articulating the faith in 1 Corinthians 15 It's a little bit more of a robust uh, expression and affirmation of our faith and a little bit more context. In the first two to three centuries, the church grew so rapidly uh, and so miraculously despite so much intense persecution, folks getting their heads chopped off, being filleted alive, just, you know, average Christian life stuff, right? And it grew so rapidly despite this opposition that there was... So much continuity of message, even amidst the persecution. That's one of the things that carried the Christian message to the nations in all of the the Roman world, even within the first century. In fact, in 303 AD, the Christian faith had gained so much momentum that the Roman emperor Diocletian tried to burn all of the documents that were written down about Christian scripture and the Christian faith. Because the, this, this weaponless army that was advancing and that was really threatening his influence in the empire had to cause some sort of response. And his decision, let's just burn all the scripture. He almost succeeded in doing so. But his little problem, one of his many problems, was that, uh, that so much had been committed to memory by this dangerous group of multiplying people that he couldn't stop the spread of Christianity. In fact, a lot of the reason why scriptures and various truths were committed to memory had to do with a lot of these creeds that were going over. Now, to be clear, the Apostles' Creed, uh, this first first creed is written down in scripture, but the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Christian creeds are not inspired scripture. We believe that scripture, the 66 books that are revealed in the Bible are inerrant or infallible in their original languages. And there's ways that we can know what was there. We believe scripture is infallible. We don't believe the creeds are. But the creeds have always articulated, defended, and spread the truth of scripture. Even before people had access to written language or the Gutenberg press made it readily available for everyone else. The New Testament was being written down and ordered and and uh, preserved and canonized if you know that word. And it was after a lot of these creeds were spreading. And how many of y'all know that God is still using his church to articulate, defend and spread the truths revealed In these scriptures, and with all the wealth of information, what we need probably more than anything is a simplicity of faith, a continuity of message, a boldness to be dangerous to the enemy. If you believe that, you can say amen. Amen. If you don't believe that, then just whisper, God help me to believe that. So that's what we're doing this spring. We're going to take the Apostles' Creed in particular, we're going to break it up into parts, We're going to walk through it, and then we're going to go through that topic and see what Scripture has to say about that. We're going to teach Scripture. The first phrase of the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Can you say that with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Well done. Now, we could preach for years every Sunday to lift up the Father Creator from Scripture. And in fact, we intend to do so. Uh, But as it relates to this series and what we're going to preach today, I want to anchor my teaching for the next 30 minutes or so. I want to anchor my teaching into our main text from 1 John 3. And as I do, as I go through the first three verses of 1 John 3, I have three observations that I want to share with you. Verse 1, been. Verse 2, born. Verse 3, become. So my first observation from the very beginning of our passage, he has always been father, if you're taking notes. He's always been father. Father. Our passage starts out see what kind of love the Father has given to us. I want to stop there. I'm gonna pause here for a while and develop something that we need to develop because we assume a lot in our culture. But when John wrote this on likely on the island of Patmos, this was not taken for granted. In fact, it was more or less provocative to say that the Father has bestowed on us the things that he goes on to mention. The Father is who he is. He's always been Father. The thing, though, is is that we don't tend to see that. That's why he says, see what kind, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. It says, see... Because in our fallen minds, in our depravity, in our wounds, our pain, our misunderstanding, in our minds, in our upbringing, we don't tend to see the Father for who He is. He's always been Father in a particular type of holy, pure Father that's full of love. He's always been Father. We just don't tend to see Him for who He is. And that's why He says, see starts out with this word, behold. Watch out. One has to say things like this, like see or look out because we're not seeing, right? We're not looking. (laughs) When I say to my child, look at me in the eyes, it's because they're not, right? When I say, hey, look at that sunset, or I always bother my wife when we're driving a it's like, unfortunately, I'll interrupt what she's saying. I'm like, look at that. Look at, look at that field over there. Look at the wildflowers. And, and uh, I need to figure out how to help her see that and, not, and and also for me to listen to her, but that's a different message. But we, when we're told, look, it's because we're not looking. When, when we're told to see, behold, it's because we don't see. The Father has always been Father. We don't tend to consider this enough. He was in perfect relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit for eternity past. That blows my mind. He's always been Father. He's always been Father. He didn't need to create us to, uh, to, you know, to fulfill some sort of empty longing. In fact, the creed says, Father and Creator. Well, He was Father before He created the angels and then before he created humans and the earth and everything else, he has always been father. He didn't need to create us. I remember the longing to to, to father more children when our when our uh, oldest was three years old, and we, we were uh, diagnosed as infertile. And and uh, you know the, the story goes that Jesus kind of weighed in on his his opinion about our fertility uh, in double portion, triple portion, really. Uh, And so we went from one child to four in a matter of like just over a year. Um, But I remember what it felt like to long for another child. And there was like this desire that without which, without the object of this desire, I almost felt like incomplete. Like I I needed another child to fulfill a fatherly longing. Let me tell you, God has never felt that way. He's always been (laughs) Father. In fact, one of the one of the, the outworkings that I think is great of the of the creeds in the fourth century is that Jesus is begotten, not made. It's important to clarify that Jesus has always been because God the Father has always been Father. He's been in glorious, fulfilling relationship in the Godhead for all of eternity's past. He didn't need to create us. He's always been. Father. Now, I've heard people say, scoffers, say things like, well, maybe we, maybe we just kind of created a concept of God out of our own, you know, like we, we created God in our own image. You know, we know what it's like to have a father. And so we just called God Father because that's the best that we can understand it. And that's kind of like the latest evolutionary uh, depiction of who God is. And I've heard things like that. And let me tell you, this is, this is a wrong view of history in the least. Uh, in our tradition, at least, affirming God as our Father personally is relatively new in history. Jewish traditional thinking, for instance, bucked strongly at, at this idea that God is our Father, that the God Elohim, Yahweh, is a personal Father to me. It was seen as irreverent in its overpersonalness. But Jesus proved that reverence to God and personal love for Him as Father are not only uh, able to be reconciled, but they're inseparable. My reverence for God and my personal relationship for Him are one and the same because God has always been. Father. And so we don't project our understanding of Father on God. We inherit our understanding of Father from our eternal Father God. I'm gonna say that again. We don't just project our understanding of Father on God. We inherit our understanding of Father, which is why it's such a strong thing in our formative relationships. You've heard of this thing, this thing, daddy issues. It's because there's something powerful about father. Why? Because we've inherited father from our eternal father God. He's always been father. Now, before we move on in our passage, I want to take you on a brief tour through scripture to underline this point. He's always been father. All the way back to the start, the, the Torah, the writings of Moses, as Jesus called it. Deuteronomy 32, 6. Is he not your father who created you? Who made you and established you? So here we have creator and father. See they knew him as creator but hey is he not also your your father, creator? Remember I believe in God the father creator of heaven and earth. He's father, he's creator. That's Deuteronomy, but even to the writings of the Old Testament. We see David in Psalm 68. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in home. And David can't stop, won't stop. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He's always been father. From Moses to the writings and even into the prophets. Isaiah 64, 8. We buckled in here? Isaiah 64. But now, O Lord, Yahweh, you are Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. So the the depiction of Father as creator. We are the work of your hand. He is the Father. He is the creator. He's always been both. In fact, this is an important thing to understand. See, Jewish tradition didn't have trouble seeing God, the creator, as father necessarily. The trouble was in personalizing that understanding and saying, okay, he's my father. That just got way too close for comfort. And Jesus, knowing this discomfort and knowing the opportunity inherent associated with that, just blew it all apart. He comes and in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Remember, in the middle of that, he teaches us to pray, right? He says, pray like this, our Father. And because Jesus' teaching largely has has been the, the, the thing that has really enriched so much of our culture, we can take this for granted. This was scandalous for Jesus to teach sinners to pray, our Father. In fact, 15 times in the Sermon on the Mount is at least what I counted. He teaches us to understand truth by reexamining the paradigm of truth and seeing God as our Father, asking Him things as our Father, changing the ways we think about things and do things, understanding that He is a Father. God has always been father. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, it goes on. All things, Jesus says, has been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except for the father, and no one knows the father except for the son, and anyone whom the son chooses to reveal him. So the son uniquely displays really who the father is, but it goes the other way around too. John 6, Jesus says, no one comes can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will lift him up on that last day. See, the Father leads you to the Son. The Son leads you to the Father. It's always been this way. It's a beautiful synergy that's always been glorious, and he's letting creation into it through the redemption of Jesus. In fact, part of that, that redemption is the difficult parts of your life. The, la- the last scripture I'll read about the father is Hebrews twelve seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See, church, even your most raw and difficult moments can show you a more beautiful and profound truth than your pain. That God is Father and He can treat you as a child. He's always been Father. That's observation number one. Observation two, we were not born His children. Check out verse two. Verse two, Beloved, we are God's children now. Stop there. The reason why John says we're his children now is because we weren't his children before. That's kind of the assumption. Lady Gaga, she claims, baby, I was born this way. If you don't know that song, then you're holier than me. But you know what? maybe. Check this out. I think she's, she's right. Yeah, she was born this way. And I think there's some unintentional theological truth in her defiant claim. I was born this way. See, because we're all born a little bit messed up. Maybe you don't wear like steak suits or dresses or whatever, but in our own way, we're born a little bit messed up. He's always been father, but we were not born his children, I don't think there's any better place that articulates this more severely and beautifully than this chapter of the Bible, First John 3. He's always been father and we were not born his children. When it says we're his children now in verse 2, largely it's a summary, that statement, now we're his children. It's, this is building off of how verse 1 really started to culminate. So let's let's go back at what happens in verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us, it didn't know Him, it wasn't united with Him. But beloved, we are His children now. This scandalous this scandalous truth from verse two builds from the fact that the Father, who's always been Father, has called us who were not born as children. To be his children, and so we are. The only operative reason for any of us to be God's children is because we are called God's children. Now let's be careful to process what this means and what it doesn't mean. There is so much misunderstanding about the gospel that takes place on this issue. So let's slow down. God help us. You cannot assume that this means, the scripture means that, you know, we've always been his children, you know, we're all God's children. Have you ever heard that said? That is a lie. No, we're not, none of us were born as children. You cannot assume this means, you know, we've always been his children and and, and now he kind of gives us a special badge, a special title. He's kind of calling us what we always were. No, scripture won't allow you to make that conclusion here or anywhere else. The word "called" when it says, "we are, we are," when it says, "how great the love the Father has lavished upon us," and NIV, or, or "granted to us," that we should be called children of God, and so we are. This word "called" literally means invited, or named, or brought forth. It it literally means to bring someone into an identity that was previously alien to them. I think the best way to illustrate this is the way it's illustrated in one of my favorite uh, books to articulate it. Uh, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis uh, shows a beautiful display of the gospel that Jesus opens up to us by calling us. Edmund and Peter and his sisters, I forgot their names, Lucy and Susie, nailed it. Did they find Narnia or were they called to it? They had no business finding Narnia. They didn't have the capacity to find something that wasn't in their nature to find. They were called into something they had no business being around. They couldn't have performed enough to, to achieve something that they were previously unaware of. They were called into a place that they didn't have a paradigm and could not have a paradigm to understand. And, and even Edmund, for instance, in the story, it's, I don't care if I spoil it, you need to go watch it anyway because it's still good. Edmund betrays in this new world, so he takes for granted this, this flowering new world that's open to him. He betrays his sister, he betrays the king of this land, and yet there's provision for atonement made for Edmund And he's still not only called into the land, he's called king in the land. That is such a great picture of how God calls you children of God, and so you are. Edmund was called into Narnia, and so he was in Narnia. Why am I a child of God? Because God called me into this world, into this life, into this desire, into this new way of looking at the world, looking at women, looking at my identity, because he has called it, so I am. How great the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called, we? Not born children of God, but called children of God, and that's the reason that you can be a child of God. If God calls you, transforms you, Brings you into a new world. We're called out by him. We're not born his children. In fact, the, the, the chapter here goes on to, to make this very clear. I grew up misunderstanding. Oh, we're all God's children. Check out verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, or in context, is still a child of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the effects of sin, of fallenness, the power of it to define you, to determine the outcome of your life. Little children, let Let no one deceive you. You know, the thing about deception is that one does not know when one is deceived. That's why it's called deception. I didn't grow up knowing I was deceived. I just went on irreverently calling myself a child of God. Oh, we're all God's children. The pattern of my life declared that I was not a child of God. I was normal. I was full of sin, depravity. I looked at women like a child of the devil would look at women. I told jokes that way. The pattern of my life made it very clear that, that I, was not, I was not that I was not only born a child of the devil, but I had never been born again. I was still a child of sin, a son of the darkness. None of us are born children of God. Now, when it says here, whoever makes a practice of sinning, is of the devil the devil's been sinning from the beginning maybe today the holy spirit has illuminated his scriptures to you in this very moment and and by the way i'm speaking to a congregation not individuals so if you're feeling like oh are you are you saying i'm not saved well, maybe the Holy Spirit is talking to you, because I'm talking to a congregation. Maybe the Holy Spirit is telling you, He's personalizing this message and saying, You have not received this yet. You were born this way, and you're still this way. You've not been born again. Let me caution everyone in here. This is a this this very severe words from verse 1 John three. This is a diagnostic, not a prescription. It's a diagnostic. It shows you who you are. It doesn't tell you how to fix that in these verses. It's a diagnostic. It's not a prescription. So if you find based on the practices of your life that you're not a child of God, that you're still the way you were when you were born, based on the practices of your life, please hear me. Don't go try to change your practices. Ask God to change you. Don't go try to change your practices. This is a diagnostic. This tells you the Bible tells me who I am and what Jesus has done for me. He's always been Father. We were not born His children. I told you I grew up thinking I was a child of God, but just so irreverent about uh, my sin, and I was really a child of the devil. The the practices were clear. I lived a very consistent fallen sinner life. I was consistent. Until I was invited to a campus ministry on my high school campus, and I saw my excuses about why I didn't need to follow God literally exposed and destroyed as I saw young people living for God. I saw myself for the first time in the mirror of what I was designed to be. I saw myself for who I was. One of the beauties of the Bible is nothing like the Bible can tell you uh, what's wrong with you? And, and, and how Jesus makes things right. But I, I heard the gospel for the t- first time. I heard that we were created for an adventure that was better than sin. That's better than sin. An adventure, an exhilaration in the Holy Spirit. We're created for glory. I heard the gospel that, that we're also fallen from God's glory. That's, that's the reason why all these things that I seek after, whether I find them or I don't, they still don't satisfy outside of God. We're fallen. And I learned that only Jesus can redeem all those things. He can, he's the only one who's paid the price to atone for my sin and grant me forgiveness of sin before a perfectly holy God. And how he doesn't just leave me there, he wants to take me from that place to further glory, to grow and grow and grow in him and overtake everything that would stand against him. It's the first time I heard of the gospel, that I can be a new creation. I was born of God in that campus ministry. And then things started to change. I had new desires I can't explain to you still how that happened. But verse 9 does pretty well. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because he tries really hard. And he, and he, and he has, uh, he, he tithes. He gives to the church. All those are important things. Trying hard, tithing. But listen, operatively, no one, doesn't say those things. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Because God's seed abides in him, he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. God has always been the father, but we were not born his children. And isn't the gospel amazing? We are created to image forth the glory of God. Everyone say created. But we're fallen from that glory. And our sinful nature displays that. Everyone say fallen. fallen. But we can be redeemed by Jesus. Everyone say redeemed. redeemed. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. In our place. And on the third day he rose again from the dead. So that he, had the, he could gain the power and the jurisdiction. To seed us new life. But it doesn't just stop at redemption. He doesn't just stop at new birth. See, he continues to water us until we flourish and grow and come into our full destiny. Amen? We're also being restored. Everyone say restored. Get ready to be blessed by verse 3 and observation number 3. See, because number one, we're He has always been Father. Number two, we were not born His children. We need to be born again. Number three, from that point, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. This is an old aphorism. I don't remember where I heard it from at the first, but this really unpacks what culminates in verse 3 really well. We become what we behold. Verse 3 says... Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he, Jesus, is pure. See, if the best thing you're hoping for in your life, that you're craving, that you're longing for, if the best thing is a lesser thing, then the worst thing that a loving father can do for you is to fulfill that hope in your life. The best thing he can do is to thwart that hope and supplant it with greater hopes, like the hope of being with and made to be like the pure one, Jesus. Check out the whole flow of thought that leads to verse three from verse two. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. See, you become what you behold. This verse is talking about a moment in the future when, when Jesus comes back and we see him, and in the twinkling of an eye, nothing's the same. It's talking about a moment, but it's also talking about a process of becoming like him from redemption to restoration, which is the rest of the Christian life. It's a glorious and powerful life. In beholding Jesus, we become like him. Now, when it says here in verse two, what we will be, we're God's children now. So, so we weren't born as children, but we're his children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Is that saying that like, there's like another step like we become a new kind of thing? Like we got to be born again again? Or like we got to have new new birth? No, I, I don't think so. I think what it's saying here is that the seed that's very really on the inside of you is going to grow and flourish and, and, and grow in so much glory that it overtakes all the other things that you used to think were big things and that you used to worry about. And you used to to, to look at your accounts and say, is there going to be enough for this? And all those things will be brought small to the way they really are. And you will become more like you with the seed of God inside of you. You'll become more like Jesus and his seed will overtake everything else. And you'll be who you're made to be and who the seed of God dictates that you now are. Our beloved are his children. Now, now, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when we see him, we'll be like him. You become what you behold. And in beholding Jesus, more and more, everyone say, more Jesus. You become more powerful, more like him. You just can't help but see miracles flow from your life and people that are sick get well around you. You just can't help but interrupt people's lives. And see the glory of God manifest through your words. In beholding him, you become like him. I want to illustrate this point with a picture. And I need you to look carefully at this picture. I'm going to ask you a question. Which of these pictures, the left or the right? It's a pretty simple question. Which of these is an apple tree? The answer is both. You see, on the left, there is a a seedling of an apple tree. On the right, there's a fully mature, bearing fruit apple tree. Both are an apple tree. So when the Bible says, beloved, we're God's children now. Think about this picture on the left. Beloved, we're God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when we see him, we'll be like him. Now think about what Jesus did. Think about what Jesus said. Think about what it would have been like to be around Jesus. To to hear his words, the attractiveness that came out of the purity around him. And then think about the silly jokes you used to tell. Beloved, we know that when we see him, we will be like him. It's miraculous, it's powerful, it's glorious. It sets everything else in its proper place. You are birthed anew, but you are also becoming more of who you already are. That's what the Christian life, what the power of restoration, the moment from conversion to death is an adventure that's all about. Now, some of us have a misunderstanding in regards to to weeds. First of all, we have the seed of God on the inside of us and we allow other weeds to, to stagnate the growth of the word of God on the inside of us. Or worse yet, because we haven't seen the full culmination of God's glory and the, the fruit bearing increase and increase, we call ourselves weeds. We curse ourselves as something lesser than, than the seed of God inside of us. If you've been born of God, you're a child of God. Now, now some of us, like I used to be, maybe we're we're like a whole different kind of thing. We're not we're not either of these, and we'll we'll, we'll tape kind of fruits, right? Like imagine taping apples or oranges to an apple tree. You, you could kind of brief briefly momentarily look like it's kind of like duct tape there, and it, it's right, but it just doesn't it doesn't fit. It's kind of like me when I used to try to to do righteous works, but I wasn't the seed of righteousness was not in me. Don't try, don't try to practice righteousness. Ask God to be born of him and ask him to supplant all the other weeds around you and to grow. Set your eyes on Jesus and beholding him, all the other worries and cravings at work, the things that we, we see will be brought low. We will see him. We will be like him. Anyone who thus hopes purifies himself even as he is pure. As I draw to a close, ask yourself this. What are other things in your life that need to be uprooted so the seed of God can grow in you? And has the seed of God even been planted? Because regardless of what the uh, the answer to those two questions is, the, the true answer of how to move forward is set your eyes on Jesus and be renewed by him. Either have his seed planted on the inside of you, God, make me new, or God, destroy everything else that stands in your way. As we're gathering our children and preparing for confession and communion, would you stand to your feet with me?